Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Bible in a Year reading plan. We also have PDFs available on our website, grove.church. And as usual, if you have questions and you would like us to take some time at the end of one of our episodes to answer those questions, you can send those in to us in two ways. One, via email, and the two address is info at grove.church. Or you can direct message our Grove Church Facebook page. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. Uh, we've been called the Groove Church a couple times, but we are actually the Grove Church, just so you know. If there was some fun kind fact. of a, a holiday celebrating the 70s, that would have been a funny name change for <laughs> just true. a week. It totally would have been. Or if it was, I don't know. I'll have, to, I'll have to look into that. That seems like a, if Easter wasn't the week of April Fool's, that would have been a good one. But oh, well, what are you going to do? Wasn't there one year Easter was on April Fool's? Yeah, I wanted... Uh, that was a... F- Four years ago or something like that, maybe? I I can't remember if it was Easter or if it was just a regular church gathering. I'm pretty sure it was Easter. Because I remember pitching that we start off the gathering with, um, have you heard the, um, Jesus is a friend of mine, Jesus is my friend. I've heard it. That song, but I was And now everybody who's heard it now is going to have that song stuck in their head the rest of the day. So you can thank uh, the Let's Read the Bible podcast. You're You're welcome. welcome. All right. So today we're talking about the Song of Solomon. Uh, As far as resources that we're using, uh, it's pretty light this week. So we're using the ESV and Reformation Study Bibles is kind of the main main two that I was using to to put it together. Uh, And we will get... Let's go ahead and jump right in, get yeah, started. This so, book is a little risky. It's saying. a little risque. Uh, we did a series years ago uh, about marriage, and we, we had signs created that said PG-13 <laughs> that we put in the lobby by the doors. Um, I don't, we're not going PG-13 today, uh, but this book is not a book that you should have your preteens or teenagers read for right. the fun of it. So there you go. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we're not going to go into like, yeah, if, if you're listening we're, today- We're not going to be graphic. Yeah. Maybe not like- small children, but like, we're not going to be like going into like yeah. the details of anything. So no worries there. Um, okay. So the first line of Sol- song, song of Solomon, oh man, uh, gives us two possible answers for the author. So the first line is uh, the song of songs that is for Solomon. Uh, and I'm saying that because for some reason it got erased on my notes. So that's kind of off the top of my head, the song of songs, which is from Solomon of Solomon. The basic idea here is that it could mean two things. Um, this could mean that Solomon wrote the song or that the song was written in his honor. So either it's saying when it says the song that is Solomon's, it could mean either it's Solomon's song in that he wrote it or it's Solomon's song in that it was dedicated to him. Um, but with either answer, the date is probably safe as during or not long after his reign. Um, so yeah. it doesn't make sense to kind of write this in the exile, for instance, and then dedicate it to Solomon, especially with he would be viewed much worse in the exile at times it's as true. opposed to right after his reign. So for that reason, we date it to about 960 to 931 ish BC, give or take. So, but you know, it's kind of a dart throw there, but early, very early book. At least it's not a blind dart throw. So yeah, it's not there's a blind. That. It's, it's got that going for it. It's it's better than some of the books we have, like Job. Who knows? When yeah, that thing we just know it's really early on. Yeah. Uh, okay, so then there are a couple of different ways of interpreting the book, um, and this is what you'll you'll find a lot of the conflict with Song of Songs comes to essentially: do we take it at face value for what it's talking about, or do we take it as kind of an allegory? Um, so it can be seen as a celebration of love or marital intimacy, or an allegory of Yahweh's love for his people. Um, I'm a big believer in the former interpretation, which is to say that it's a celebration of love and marital intimacy, um, particularly because it's the sexual imagery in the book. Um, there's a so there's a a common metaphor throughout scripture, but where whether it's God and the church or God and Israel of the the relationship between a bride and a groom. Um, but it's never a sexual metaphor, if that makes sense. So it's kind of weird that it would become that in Song of Solomon alone, but it's not that anywhere else in scripture. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's interesting because I think even and even in we read so much of uh that imagery <clears throat> regarding the sexual imagery in marriage today that I think when we hear that there's a big uh, comparison or picture being presented with between God and his church as a bride and a groom, that it kind of convolutes the whole conversation. Um, and so that's what I think is really, really important and, and incredible about this book, first off, is 
the celebration of something God created and ordained. Um, but it also, I, I would agree with Evan, where I think it is more about celebration of marriage and marital intimacy versus the the relationship between God and, and his bride, which to be honest with you, reading this book, that would be weird. <laughs> and the, yeah. And there's, there's connections that you can draw, especially towards the end. We'll read a passage yeah, where it's for like, sure. you could very much say like, this relation, how the woman is describing how she feels with her husband can very much say like, this is how I feel in relationship with God. But overall taken as a book, I don't think it's necessarily um, an allegory. However, that's a very open-handed issue. Yeah, for <laughs> and sure. It's, and it's a fairly recent interpretation to actually kind of take it at face value, which I think is interesting too, that most of ancient tradition is kind of using it as an allegory. So yeah, for, for what that's worth. Uh, the book itself is a collection of poetry with a loose narrative telling the story of a young Shulamite woman and her lover who is either Solomon or another young man. So I say loose narrative in that there's different parts and we'll get to them where it's really hard to peg down what's happening. Yeah. Um, a, we don't even know the main, if the main, we don't know if the main character is Solomon or not. So it could be, could not be. Um, so this could either be like, two young people meeting and falling in love in Israel's golden age under Solomon, or it could be Solomon falling in love with um, hopefully his first wife. That's the other bummer with the book is it's just like, if Solomon is the main character, it's like, um, it's an unhappy ending. Yeah. <laughs> like which in, which wife is he talking about? Yeah. So I, well, who knows? Either way, either way, it's a beautiful celebration of, of love and marriage. But yes. uh, I, I personally kind of think it's a downer if Solomon is the main character or not. Uh, so with that, the main theme of the book is how marriage is a gift from God and the peace of living in committed, uh, from the peace of living in committed love to the pleasure of marital intimacy. So it kind of talks about both of those things and you'll see it, it, it kind of ebbs and flows too, because there's moments of intense longing and passion where they're, it's just love poems to each other back and forth. Um, and some of them get, some of them get a little risky, uh, but you know, in a not risky, risque, risque. That's, what, I, that's well, what you're hitting. At. Well, I, I like, I just like saying risky sometimes. Yeah. But um, it's not risky. I know. Uh, but, uh, and it also talks to really just the idea of the, the safety of marriage, I guess, yeah. if that makes sense. So, and the, you'll see a lot of those themes come up too. Uh, while reading, it's also clear that this would be the easiest of the biblical poetry to actually perform. And so what I mean is by like drama. So if like, so if you're like, if this was a play, it actually works pretty well because when you're reading through it, what you'll see is it goes, she, him, others, right? There's yeah. clear characters. Like a script. Yeah. So, and you can even, I was, um, I was watching, um, uh, Carmen, the op opera, like parts of it while I was, cause I was like having classical music on in the background. And so it's funny cause it reminded me of like the habanera a little bit, which, but in theme, the exact opposite. Cause the theme of habanera is like this, like really bad seduction that's happening. And all of the guys are like, Ooh. Um, but in the way that it's formatted where like one of the men will speak, the woman will speak. And then all of a sudden the chorus rises up behind them. And then that's kind of the, that's kind of the way that song of songs is structured a little bit. So for what it's worth, um, and also not that this was ever performed because it seems like it was kind of kept under lock and key a little bit. Yeah, I hope so. So, but uh, just in that, as far as the poetic and the songs that we see in the Old Testament, this is the one that has kind of the clearest structure for it. So mm -hmm. there you go. Um, and then finally for the outline, both the ESV and the uh, the Reformation Study Bible divide it into four main sections. The ESV technically has five sections, but one section is just the first verse. So basically, it's four. So sections. we discredit that one. Yeah, we just like yeah, that's not you, a good section. What are you thinking, ESV? But that's, that's why the CSV is better. So there you go. Uh, but yeah, we're going to take it into those four sections that they outline here. So the first one is from uh, chapter one, verse two, through uh, chapter two, verse seventeen. And essentially, we'll call this one the desire for love, if it were. Uh, the opening line of the song introduces the two lovers and their desire for each other. Um, so first, the woman speaks. And so here's where we start. This is like minus the the, song, the introduction of the book. This is like the first line. Mm -hmm. And it goes, uh, and this is her lines. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant, and your name 
is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And then this is the other, so the chorus. The chorus rises up and sings. It says, we will exalt and... Oh, I can't, I can't sing. Uh, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I'm disappointed you didn't read in a female voice or a high-pitched voice to yeah. kind of emulate <laughs> she. Would have been, I think that would have just made everyone really uncomfortable. If you would have asked me to do that, I totally would have started doing oh, that. Oh, man. Way, but. Uh, but yeah, so here... we like to have fun. Let's just be honest. So here we see a couple things right off the bat. Um, number one, there's just pure adoration that she has oh, yeah. uh, for the man character, and that's reciprocated. It's it's a it's very much a two way street, um, and also that everyone around approves of this, right? So the chorus is not. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think how to say. Basically, it's not like no, don't do this. Like the chorus is basically cheering them on yeah. almost throughout the whole book. So celebrating love, and then also, and this is an important thing to talk about too. Um, a lot of this book gets lost in translation. Translation is maybe the wrong word. It gets lost in culture. Um, oh, absolutely. So, so like, for instance, like, um, I mean, for your love is better than wine. I feel like that holds up pretty well. Yeah, that makes that and makes pretty it, good sense. But then it jumps into your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. It's like, okay. Therefore, virgins love you. Yeah, it's just like that. Like, all right, well, I don't know what all this means. And that's what... We'll get to we'll get to my favorite sections of the book here in a little bit. But uh, that's what a lot of the book is. It's kind of things you have to pause and think about or things that you just have to kind of Are the trust. favorite sections you're alluding to the um the Taylor Swift comparisons we did in youth years and years ago? I don't know. I don't remember what we did. Is Wait, the ones was it from Song of Solomon or is it from Taylor Swift songs? I thought those were Lamentations, but I could be wrong. No. Could be. Could but, be. Okay. Oh, don't worry. Sorry. We'll get there. Yes, it's funny. Um, and then eventually the man replies. Um, and so he says, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flock and the pasture of your young goats beside the shepherd's tent. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. And then the others join in. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. So there you go. That's Again, very generous of them. Yeah, good work, chorus. Thank you, others. Way to be, way to be great. But it's always nice to, you know, I'm sure I'm not, a, I'm not a female, but I'm sure it's always nice to be compared to a horse, the finest right. horse in, in, in so, a, and it, 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 what's a herd. It is, is one right? of those things. Yeah, it is one of those things where some of the animal comparisons in the Bible um, don't age well, but some not do. at all. So, like, I think the horse one. So like you would never tell your wife like you're like a horse, but I think when you think of like majestic animals, the yeah, horse, for sure. the horse still comes up. You know what I mean? Yep. Whereas like one of the one of the biblical analogies that doesn't age well into West modern Western culture is like you're like a dog because like when we think of dog, we think like wonderful loyal companion, and in like almost the entirety of scripture, the dog is just like the lowest form of scum. <laughs> like it's kind of yeah, that's true. It's kind of a bummer to think that like so many of my favorite biblical characters hated dogs. But what are you what are you gonna do? That's they fair. just they didn't know they they weren't aware of the uh, what they could do for you. Yeah, goats don't age well either. True. Yeah, we don't view we don't view goats in nearly as high of a no a not, way as they did. Yeah, not at all. Um, so in these passages, we get to know our characters a bit. Uh, the woman is poor, um, or at the very least, not wealthy, um, and she's very self conscious about it. And so she talks about how um, she's tan and she doesn't like that. And the reason she wouldn't like it is because so opposite from today. Well, it's yeah, it is funny that um, throughout the whole book, the things that she's self conscious about is being tan and thin. Which, I mean, to, like by today's standards, you're like, wait, why? What's wrong with you? Right. But like back then, what that, both of those things were signs that you weren't wealthy. Because yeah, if you were you wealthy- in the fields. Yep. And you didn't have much to eat. It meant she was outside a lot and it meant that she wasn't gorging mm -hmm. herself on food all the time. Yep. So, um, and then the man continuously tells her that she's neither. And so like all of his, like, not all of the compliments, but a lot of the compliments are funny because it's just basically like, no, like your navel's like a rounded goblet. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, but he's, but like, it, it, yeah, it's just funny. I love it. Uh, so this is how, how Evan wooed his, his wife, by the way, he just quoted nonstop. Different I'll, things I'll say this later, but I do, Song of Solomon. I do all the time, like rip off random quotes from Song of Songs just to annoy Ashley with them. But, uh, and then one more passage, uh, just for kicks, because I like these passages. Um, so this one, she starts off, then he replies to her. So she says, High pitch voice. uh, be, no, I'm not going to do it. 
Uh, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. I don't know what that means. Uh, The beams of our house are cedar and the rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And then he says, as a lily among the brambles, so is my love among the young women. Which I mean, I, that last line I think actually ages pretty well because basically, because yeah. basically saying like in a world of thorns, there's a lily in the middle, and that's what you are like among all the other women that I see. Which I, yeah. you know, kind of bashing the other ladies around, but I mean, you know, he's just elevating her, I suppose, more than yeah, anything for else. sure. But I think that that particular brand of poetry there ages well. So yeah, I think it absolutely ages well. I think even when it comes to the house conversation, like beams of cedar, rafters are pine. Houses Couch, then they couches green. Yeah, the, I mean it's they were colorful. Like having anything of color, uh, fabric or or decor was a very big sign of wealth because they didn't have that. It was it was rare. It wasn't a, like we can't just jump on Amazon. They couldn't jump on Amazon and order a green pillow or a green couch. Right. It was it had to be dyed. It had to be like very very diligently. A lot of work was put into it. Um, and again, most of the houses were made of like mud and stick and clay. Like that's that's just how most of the houses were back then. Right. So. Um, it is interesting too, when you look at, I think there's, um, there's a couple things that get lost just in history, right? Is a, like the, the ancient world is more colorful than we think of it. Um, and this is like, so I, and I did, I don't, I don't know why I never thought about this, but this is a fairly recent, it's been in the last few years that it was kind of shown, but like all of the Greek statues that we think of as being like, you know, like really famous of the buildings, like they're all painted. Like now they're just white because the paint's all come off yeah but like when and like in egypt it wasn't all like you know what i mean so it's kind of like it's interesting to think through like as she's describing like their home and all these different things um but also the idea of different colors costing different things because right now we would think of like if we want something to be purple or if we want it to be red it there's not like well purple is going to be twice the amount because that's expensive yeah, right. back then dyes were really rare so I, I didn't look into green but i'm assuming it means that it's a little bit more expensive. Yeah, of a anything, thing. anything vibrant, anything that that is is, for lack of a better way to say, it, loud in its color, loud and um, proud. Those things are going to be very expensive because they take. They, they, it's more rare because they don't have. It's it's not as available, widely available. Mm-hmm. But all right, this next section is uh, easily the most difficult to interpret of of the book. So we're going to label it the woman's dream. Um, it could be one dream. And when I mean dream, I mean literally like she's sleeping and having a dream. Um, it could be one dream. It could be two dreams. It could be a dream that she's woken up. It's, it's, uh, we'll, we'll get into it. Yeah. There's a lot of ambiguity uh, here. Right. So the next section, we see a dream that the woman has, um, it starts as kind of a nightmare where she cannot find the man. So Aaron, if you want, want to read, uh, yeah, absolutely. Bride's dream. On my bed by night. I saw, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, man. Listen, we just got to have some fun, okay? Uh, it says, on my bed by night, I thought or I sought him who my soul loves. I sought him, but he found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him who my soul loves. I sought him, but not uh, found him not. The watchmen found me as they went out about in the city. Have you seen him who my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them. Well, I'm not good at poetry reading. Sorry. Um, when I found him whom my soul loves, I held him and would not let him go. This is actually one of the verses from my wedding. Oh. Um, when I found him whom my soul loves, I held him and would not let him go. That was one of the verses. Uh, Until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you stir, you not wait, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And that's a verse that I would use to preach to youth often oh, yeah. uh, about a not awakening or arousing love. Well, and we'll see this a little bit later come into play too. And I think in a, in a really fitting spot. Um, so here's what I mean by <laughs> it's difficult to interpret. So you can either interpret this as A, she was laying in bed. She and it was just a dream. She didn't know where her husband was and she got up and went out around town to find him. Or she's in bed and she fell asleep and had this nightmare where she couldn't find him. So again, who knows, but, uh, eventually she does find him. So, and it's just kind of this picture of, um, the fear of losing a loved one, I suppose. And then the safety of being in that marriage relationship. Uh, so then it moves to either her remembering their wedding or dreaming about what the wedding will be like, or it just cuts to the wedding. So again, Who knows uh, in this particular one, uh, it can be a little bit confusing. And, and just to say, when we say who knows, like even scholars can't agree and right. identify this is exactly what's happening. We we don't know. We weren't there. 
scholars have given their best guesses and we're trying to tr- accumulate as much information to make the best guess, but there's just things we're not going to know. And to be honest with you, it's not even as relevant to the conversation at hand regarding the heart and purpose uh, of the Song of Solomon or the song right. of songs, how we see it. But it reminds we really me, don't know. It reminds me a little bit of Revelation where um, there's a lot of the details that are really confusing and hard to interpret. But the main themes and the main yeah, things are still there. So keep you know keep the main things the main things yeah. I suppose. Uh, so then comes uh, my favorite passage of the book, and this is the one I'll like. I'll just quote random things from this to to my wife to make her mad. Uh, but I love that you wrote and she hates in parentheses. Oh yeah, she hates it. So. Uh, Sorry, Ashley. So but so song. This is Song of Songs four one through four. This is just kind of some of them. But it goes, um, behold, you are beautiful. And this is the man speaking to the woman. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold. You are beautiful. Starts off great. Uh, Your eyes are doves behind the veil, which is also kind of, I feel like that one ages pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then it goes, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. So, I mean, there you go. That's if you ever want to compliment your wife's hair, flock of goats descending down the hills of Gilead. You you can tell her it's from the Bible. Therefore, Uh, it even has better value. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. And not one among them has lost its young. So your teeth are like a bunch of uh, really fertile sheep. So there you go. Uh, your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. This one is also a great one. Uh, your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them the shields of warriors. So yeah. That's awesome. Just like, you know, your your neck is, that looks like, the shields of warriors should be chilling there. So anyway, that happens. Uh, It's a good time. Um, And then we get to chapter five. So the dream either continues. So either all of this has been one dream and it's still going, or um, this is a new dream. So like there's a dream and then the wedding happens and there's a new dream, or it could be that she gets woken up from the dream in this section. Again, it's kind of hard to pin down. Uh, but in this section, it's kind of an interesting one. There's a little bit of marital conflict here, if you will. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, but the man arrives in the early morning uh, and he asks to be let in. Uh, the woman makes a few excuses as to why not let him in. And then when she opens the door, he's gone. So what? again, is this another nightmare? Is she really anxious about um, basically like him leaving when they're married? Or is this actually happening? Who knows? Uh, but after the woman praises him for a while, we get this exchange between the chorus and the woman. So the woman kind of goes on this um, this long line of saying like how great uh, the man is. And then the chorus is kind of feeding into it. It's like, oh, yeah, he's so awesome. And she's like, yeah, he is. And then uh, so this exchange happens. So this is the other starting it off. Uh, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? Uh, And then she says, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. So that last line is very much, um, very much should point us to God's relationship with the church. Mm -hmm. The idea of, because in Revelation 21, we get the famous passage of, and I will be their God and they will be my people. I think I reversed that, but you know, they will be my people and I will be their God. Um, and then here we see, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. Also, he's going to the garden to get lilies, which I'm assuming is her favorite flower because he compares her to a lily among the the bramble. So yep. if it's not her favorite, then it's... At the very least, they're beautiful flowers. That is true. And and that is that is significant too. Also, they're Ashley's favorite flowers. So Aww, there you go. She likes lilies. Precious. But I can't get them anymore. Which lily? Uh, oh, geez. Don't put me on the spot like that. I don't know. Day lilies? Calla lilies? I just get lilies. I don't okay. I didn't even realize. I don't know. The, the, the long ones? The cylindrical ones? Yeah. Like the when they have the little thing coming out. I think that's a calla lily. Cal- sure. The day lily is the star one. Gotcha. It looks like a big star. All I know is I can't get them anymore because apparently mm-hmm. like if cats eat them, they die. <laughs> so. What? Uh, yeah. Who knew? Anyway, we have cats. So another reason why you shouldn't have cats. Just saying, as dogs. There you go. Uh, so, anyways, all of that happens, um, and so we get the end of that section. Uh, we get the end of that section there. 
Uh, so then we get the section of mutual praise. This is probably the easiest one to see what's going on in the whole book uh, because it's just long love. It's a really long set of love poems where they're just going back and forth about how amazing they think each other are. This is pretty much what my wife would do every day. We just text each other how much we love each other and how great we are and how you both get home from think. work. You just sing in front of the children. We, yeah, we sing and we dance actually. Oh, there you go. Uh, and then apparently the man is really into her hair because he calls her uh, he calls her hair a flock of goats again. He uses the exact same compliment descending down the hills of Gilead. So there you go. He he he's into her hair. So very cool. Uh, and so interestingly, this whole passage ends with a refrain that we hear throughout the book. And this is what Aaron was alluding to earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this, it's this really long portion of the man is praising the woman. The woman is praising the man. They're kind of just celebrating their love. And then it ends in eight, four with, I adjure you. And this is the woman speaking. I adjure you or O daughters of Jerusalem that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases Boy, this sounds like thunder upstairs. <laughs> yeah, it does. If you, we're recording this on a Thursday, um, and they're doing spring cleaning right by the building where we're recording. So if you hear the little thunder sound in the background, it's actually a pressure washer. I was going to say, I think it's getting pressure washed right now. So yes. I just, I feel like it adds some drama, like yeah. a little bit <laughs> in the background. Uh, so anyways, all of that is happening. Uh, but yeah, it is this really good reminder of, um, and I think it's a good reminder even just for uh, for youth too, where you talk about, like, I, I think... One of the mistakes that we can make as Christians is not talk about how beautiful marriage is, yeah, absolutely. particularly to the young. Um, but it does have to be with this caveat of like, don't try and get what's beautiful about marriage before it's time. Yeah. And that's kind of like, like, um, like sex within marriage is an incredible gift from God, but it's easy to become decadent. And if you pursue sex for just its own, for its own purpose and its own pleasure, it, it leaves you feeling empty. Yeah. Um, same thing with the safety in marriage. Like the, if, if you um, allow your heart to become that vulnerable with someone before the commitment of marriage, a lot of times it leads to just absolute heartbreak because it wasn't, it wasn't the right time to experience that gift from God. So yeah. It, and there's, there's a lot of stats and a lot of research uh, that has proven anything prior to marriage. It does not, does not guarantee long, lifelong love, so to speak. You know, I, there's there's a lot of the conversation of, you know, I would challenge students to not arouse or awaken love as another translation says it until it's 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 time. And helping students understand, even young adults, I think this is the other side of the conversation. Like even if you're in your 30s or 40s, it's resting through this tension of, if you're single, God, why am I still single? You you wrestle with that question. If you have a desire for a relationship. But it's understanding God's timing is perfect because the most full expression and most full experience of love happens in the context of marriage for individuals who are going to get married. So to cheapen it, to water it down, to dilute it is a big deal. And it kind of, it makes me think about, um, so another common, I think, way that we can view this, or at least an analogy, is, um, so me and Ashley have been married for about three years. My parents- paused. I've had to calculate really quick. Uh, my parents have been married for um, over 30. I don't, I think it might be at 35 now. Um, so it's been a while. Sorry, so, Annette. Sorry. <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, so, but there's certain things that like my parents have, right? So they have obviously like a nicer house because they've been married a long time and they've been putting money together a long time. They're able to go on like more trips and things like that. Like they were able to do, um, a couple of years ago, like an Italy trip that they've always been wanting to do and like visit Rome and see all these cool things. Um, but it would be like if me and Ashley got married and we said, oh, that's what married life is. And we started just blowing our money and going into debt, trying to buy the nice things that yeah. my parents have um, instead of waiting for them in their time. That's kind of like what it is when you look at um, the beauty of marital intimacy and you say, oh, I want that right now. But if you do it before it's time, then all of a sudden it's, it's not something beautiful. It's something that actually ends up rather heartbreaking. Yeah, it's true. Um, and then finally, the, the last section here we'll call the value of love and marriage. Um, and this is just kind of like chapter eight, the rest of it, um, all through the <coughs> end there. Uh, the final section shows uh, the, comfortable, the couple comfortable in marriage. Um, we see the woman feeling completely, uh, complete safety in this relationship with her husband. Um, and this is one of the more famous passages where it says in uh, Song of Songs 8, 6 through 7, 
Uh, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, and jealousy is as fierce as the grave. It flashes; Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench this love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And so basically, I mean, these are really powerful images. Um, and I don't think it's wrong to hear these things and to think like, this is like the love that God has for us. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the safety that we feel in his love. Yeah. I read the other day, um, one of the conversations about jealousy is actually a very strong indicator of, of, of actual love, of true love. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and from a biblical perspective, when the Bible says that God is je- a jealous God, it's because his love for us is so deep and extravagant that anything that draws our attention away from him, it, it it stirs up this jealousy where he desires to have our full affection and attention because he has a he, he rightfully desires yeah rightfully and so in, but it's he he has this full affection and desire for us um, and it's not sexual in nature but it is it, it's intimate in nature and so uh, this like the picture is very strong it's actually I remember there's a couple songs that have this section of song of Solomon in the actual song yeah there's a Jesus uh, culture song that yeah. I'm thinking of in my head uh, that I can't, I can't remember it either yeah, I can't but I remember down. we sang it at youth a, a few times but it is Chris Coelho re- it, it. it's it's a powerful picture um, that it, that is really significant um, and the interesting thing is I also think jealousy can be perverted um, just as love has been perverted and it shifts into this lust filter where there's this lustful jealousy where I want what I want because it's mine. Right. Um, and there's no, there's no re- redeemable righteous quality to it. And that's the, that's the duality of the tension we live in in sinfulness. So. Well, I think like what you said where um, like God becomes jealous for the affections of his people when they're, when they're turned away from him, which I, and I say is, is a right jealousy because God yeah. is... Uh, God is ultimate. God is above all. It is it is absolutely right that God desires um, that kind of relationship. However, like if there's an unhealthy jealousy for me, if it's like, well, like if if um, with my wife, it was like, well, why do you need any other human relationships? But like, you know what I mean? Like, there's a way for it to yeah, absolutely to drift apart. But the healthy um, jealousy within love is that the the things that God prescribes for marriage are now just between me and my wife mm-hmm. or, or two spouses, right? Um, and so I think that's kind of what's talking about here where... Um, yeah, between a husband yeah, and a wife, for Love sure. is as strong as death and jealousy is fierce as the grave. Um, and the final section is kind of interesting to read, um, but it deals with the idea of a young woman uh, both being protected and protecting herself from a young age, um, and then now how she enjoys these walls kind of being open in marriage with her husband. So it kind of starts off with... Uh, seemingly brothers of some sort talking about basically their, their little sister. Um, and then it shows that she ages and these walls kind of come up. And then as she gets married, um, the walls come down, not for everyone, but for her husband. Yeah. And then there's this picture of just kind of like the intimacy of marriage um, there as well. And there it's more emotional intimacy than yeah. anything else. So. And I remember hearing years ago when it comes to just, I mean, this is more like practical relationship advice, but the idea of you should always until you're married, be reserving something for your, your spouse alone for your husband or your wife. Always be reserving a, a very strong peace and core of you. Um, and any of these desires, like that God has created, uh, any kind of desire that is supposed to be expressed in the confines of marriage, you are, are told to hold on to. You're told to, to guard very carefully. That's the tension she, the, the, the lady in this poem is, is creating where it's do not awaken or arouse love until it's t- it so desires or it's time, is that picture of guarding what you need to guard so you can then enjoy the fulfillment and the satisfaction as God intended it to be played out in marriage. Yep. And then that's, that's how it ends. So that's Song of Songs, uh, Song of Solomon, whichever you prefer. Yeah, whichever your translation whatever, says, whatever, titles it. Whatever your Bible says. Uh, hopefully that makes it, re- reading it a little bit easier. Um, like I said, it's, it's, it's a hard book to interpret, um, but when you kind of have an idea of like, what are the main themes that it's talking about, I also think it's, it's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing is, is I, I think we started off and I said something about I think we're not going to be PG-13. We're going to be pretty as, as honoring as possible. But in the in the Jewish culture with young boys, they were actually forbidden to read this book. They were not allowed because the, yeah. the Hebrew context, the conversations in this book from the Hebrew context are very graphic. Um, not I, – I, I don't say the word – I say the word erotic carefully because nowadays erotic has this perverted twist and, and bent to it. Um, but there is this idea of eros, the the passion side of love, right? Um, that that it does have this passionate 
expression of love in in the context of marriage. And so these these young Jewish boys were not allowed to read the song, the Book of Song and Songs, until they were age appropriate to actually understand and, and navigate the material well. Yeah, uh, because they did. They studied the Old Testament, the Torah. They studied the Hebrew literature, like the uh, the poetry literature, the prophetic literature. They studied those things a lot when they were kids, and I think it still happens today. But it was one of the things that they were withheld. This was a book that's like, nope, that one's going to stay on the shelf for a while. Well, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting ending to the wisdom literature as well. Absolutely, because I mean, right before this, you get Ecclesiastes, which is basically just like, well, life is meaningless, <laughs> vanity, vanity. It's all vanity. Yeah, and then you, it comes right up, which as well was written by Solomon. So. Yeah, true. Uh, and then it comes into this, which is a very hopeful book, um, and it's a book about. And it, I think it does also deserve its place in the wisdom literature as well, because what is it about if not just the wisdom of, of youth? Yeah, absolutely. And um, this gift that God has given us, but using it properly. Um, but then it leads into the prophets, and the prophets are almost entirely depressing <laughs> because it's just essentially right. like Israel's going to fall. Um, there's there's moments where it's 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 bright and hopeful. It's going to suck, but, guys. Sorry. Yeah. And no one wanted to listen. So there you go. All right. Well, that wraps it up for our discussion of Solomon, but it does not wrap it up for the episode. Uh, we're going to go on to our Q&A. We got a question. We're going to go on to our Q&A portion here. Uh, but as a reminder, before we do, uh, <laughs> if you've been enjoying this podcast, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. Uh, it's really helpful, and it also helps to get the podcast out there to uh, more people and continue to grow this community of reading the Bible together. And I would love for you to leave your name or even a comment with it as well, because I'd love to read it, but also give you a shout out too, because it's fun to to see our community and put faces to names and thoughts to, to all of it. So there you go. if you write a review, we will shout you out on the podcast. Uh, and Evan will name his next cat after you. That is probably not true. <laughs> Just kidding. But Ashley doesn't like, she doesn't let me name the cats at all. I want to name our last cat uh, Bing Closby, but she shot me down. So what are you going to do? I would shoot you down too. And I don't even want cats. How dare you? All right. So question, uh, it says this. Uh, let's see. Oh, and that, uh, the, with the added context, it actually came in their small group, uh, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. So shout out to being in a small group. Good yeah, job. Thanks for that. All right. So biblically, why should I go to church on Sunday if I go to a small group or similar? I appreciate uh, Hebrews ten twenty five tells us to keep meeting, but they are in small groups, so they regularly meet. Acts two talks about the disciples gathering, but it, but this is more of a small groups, and the formality of a church service wasn't there. As far as I can tell, it never really was uh, in the early church, and it as it is more about gathering in the houses in a more of a small group setting. Leviticus 23 lists the Sabbath as a holy assembly per the NIV, as a festival to be celebrated, but why should we still do that, but not any of the others listed in the chapter? All right. So this is a good question. That's a great uh, question. So there's a couple a couple different things that I kind of see right off the bat. And I'm curious where we're going to land on this because we haven't talked about this at all. So we might disagree a little no, bit. No, one of the things that we do with, just so you know, with these questions is is we don't we don't talk about them before we get on the podcast. I mean, we might it's true. briefly touch on them a couple just because I'll read the question and be like, oh, this is a good question. This isn't this. But we don't ever actually say, okay, well, what do you think? What do I think? We don't collaborate on them. We just actually process out loud together live with you listening. So you're welcome. So a little bit, a little behind the curtain there. Um, okay, so number one, the the way that church is done changes from culture to culture over time, and that's just kind of a natural thing. So, like, yes, the way that uh, church looks in the early church is very different from it looks today in our modern American culture. is also different from how it looks in other cultures around the world modernly today. Um, for me, what I would say are the the markers of um, what the church should be engaging in when they meet is learning more about God and worshiping God. Those are kind of the two and, and gathering together in a community of believers. Those are kind of the three main things. And when I say worship, I don't mean singing necessarily. I just mean uh, like, uh, like giving money is worship. Um, being able to sing and praise God is worship. Prayer is worship. Like there's these different acts of worship. Uh, communion is an act of worship. Baptism is an act of worship. So it's kind of greeting your neighbor is an act of worship. And when you're in a gathering, like it's how we respond in the midst of God's goodness to one another as well. Right. Uh, so with those things being said, I think this question is more about in modern times today, why should I go to church on a Sunday if I go to a small group or similar? So the, there's a couple of reasons I would say. And so number one, I'll say this, this is an open-handed issue because um, there are things that are called 
um, home churches, which I don't think are bad. So like if, if there's a lot of people who the way that they prefer uh, to experience church is with a smaller group of people, where they're all kind of like, you know, studying the Bible together, worshiping together. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. So the question is more about what is the small group that you're a part of? Um, what is it doing? So for instance, if it's kind of like a Bible study, I think that's great. But I think what you're missing out on there is um, being able to participate in acts of worship beyond that as well. Um, the other thing that I think you can miss with smaller groups is kind of just the accountability that comes um, with a larger church. And it's kind of like the same thing with, um, and this is like, I don't know why I got off on this tangent, but um, it's kind of like the same thing with a lot of um, non-denominational churches where I don't think they're bad uh, right, uh, inherently right off the bat. But a lot of times what scares me with them is that there's no um, authority above the pastor in those situations. Whereas when you get into like the safety of a structure of, um, of a denomination, whatever, whatever one it is, as long as it's a, a biblically affirming Christian one, um, there's some safety there. So it's very easy, for instance, if you have um, just a small group of 10 people for all of a sudden that group to get hijacked by someone in a way that it's a little bit harder for that to happen with the larger church. So I don't know if that's helpful um, or not. My basic thing, I guess, would be um, I think it's edifying to be a part of a large group of believers. I think it's also edifying to be able to worship together. And I think that's kind of the most important thing the church does. Because ultimately, you can learn more about God <clears throat> on your own. Like you can search out these resources and things like that. Um, and you can even engage in a lot of acts of, uh, of um, worship on your own. But I think there's something about worshiping together as a group of Christians that is incredibly powerful that you can miss not being in church um, and also having Christian relationship and Christian accountability with people around you where that can be really hard. Um, it can be hard in a small group just because like there's just not that many people. So if you're not like, because you also have to click with people, right? Like it's not just like random, like, hello, brother, would you like to be my Christian friend? <laughs> like you kind of just have to click with people. Uh, but yeah, so th th those are kind of my thoughts. I'm curious to see what Aaron, what you think? Yeah. Um, just because you said it, and I'll just hit this first. I don't think, <clears throat> I don't think your community should hinge on people that you necessarily click with, because I don't think that that's even biblical. I think the body of Christ was a, a cumulative approach of people who experienced the love and grace and mercy of Jesus, and it never became about them. So it was never about who do I click with. Well, it's what am I doing to build relationship with my brothers and sisters. Um, I guess so, it's, yeah. So I guess what I mean. So I was, that's that like that's my immediate like. Well, no, because there's people in my life group now that I would have never engaged in a relationship with if I didn't understand the body of Christ is much more significant than people I click with. So I guess what I more mean is, um, like the deep Christian friendship of walking through life with someone is that's usually someone where it's like you have a natural. Um, a natural friendship with someone as opposed to like, I'm not saying don't have any mm -hmm. relationship with people who you have uh, like to use the phrase that you don't click with necessarily. Okay. Yeah. I think there's a lot more there still, but um, it's not, it's kind of sidestepping the whole conversation because that's more discipleship driven one-on-one, -on -one, two-on-one, whatever, like a smaller group. Um, the other thing too, is I, I, I say this really carefully. I haven't done a ton of research in this. I know I just, I actually just kind of preached the message out of Acts chapter two, which talks about this. Um, the early church were devoted to four things, the apostles teaching, which is the message of Christ, the hope of Jesus, the fulfillment of who Christ was. Uh, they devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to this idea of fellowship and community where it was, what do I contribute versus what do I get? Uh, and then the idea of sharing a meal together. So that is predominantly a small group idea, but I don't, I, and Evan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't recall ever finding in scripture that these groups and pockets of community were small groups. Uh, when they gathered, it was not in 10, 12, 14, 16 people. These are gatherings of 50 to 100, if not more, depending on the size of the house. Um, and I would, yeah, I don't know if it, I don't know if there's ever really numbers attached to it. I know there's, but I, but I believe scholarly writing alludes to this, that it's not, it's a, it's a small group of 10 people here or a small group of 14 people here, that these house churches is what, in essence, what the experience is. And they say small, we're not small in in our understanding and definition of small groups. Um, and so that's where right. I kind of, I kind of wrestle a little bit with the tension and I, and I hear it and I'm glad the question's being asked, but I'm not a hundred percent convinced that a small group of 10 to 12 people, 14 people as we would define small group. And we, with life groups here at the church, the Grove church, it's 12 to 16 people. 
is what we predominantly see mm-hmm. um, and say so that's probably the 16 is probably the peak, even though we've kind of loaded life groups with a little bit more at times just based upon need. Um, but um, I agree with everything you said about there's there's components to an actual gathering that should still stay in existence and should be components of uh, or not components, but reasons why we should gather in a large corporate gathering. Um, it is interesting because I do think there is some tension between like the, these mega churches that exist where it's, I can show up, attend, throw some money in the plate or the bin that passes me. Now it's drop it in the bin as I leave because we can't pass things. COVID. Um, thank you. Uh, but there is, there is value to it and being in a, uh, in, in a gathering with like-minded believers. Um, it's, there's value for the unbeliever. There's value for the believer. So I agree with you where there is that, like the apostles teaching, the teaching of who Christ is and how it should translate to our lives and how we can live in response to it. Excuse me, the aspects of worship, which is giving prayer, singing songs, community with other believers, uh, loving our neighbors, ourselves, those kind of serving together, like those components are all aspects of worship together. The accountability is huge. Um, Being a challenge, like as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, the the challenge that goes into this. but I don't. I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both and. And I think that's what Scripture kind of alludes to. It shows us there's value in gathering together, like Hebrew says, and not forsake meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing, and even in that conversation, they were in the habit of forsaking get meeting together out of convenience or fear of persecution. Uh, in the Hebrew church, and I, I know this because I just read <laughs> in, in the book, uh, was, was the last book I was studying the Bible before I jumped into some devotionals this year, um, was this idea that there was persecution going on. So this church was a small church that was facing difficulty and trial, and they were being exhorted by the author of Hebrews to not forsake g- gathering together because of fear of persecution or fear of consequence. Um, and so there, he he's being challenged. He's challenging those individuals. She's challenging whoever wrote it challenging those individuals to not give up prioritizing community with other like-minded believers. So, um, so I think it's one of those things where it's, it's both. And, um, I think you should be in, in a small group of 10 to 12 people because you have better relationship. Um, you have better opportunities for relationship to challenge one another, to learn, to grow in community, uh, but also not forsake showing up on, on a larger gathering because that's where there's a better today. That's where there's a better, presentation of the apostles teaching, so to speak, where we hear a message, hopefully rooted in scripture. And I say that I can say that from the Grove church, because I know that we, we strive to be biblically centered in everything we preach. And I don't know if you get that from someone who isn't uh, a a pastor or a strong leader in the church. And I say that very, very carefully, because I know you can go to other sources. Um, So I think that there's values to a lot of it. And I think home churches, those individuals who are working through scripture together, using some kind of material to help develop their, their biblical insight and understanding is those are great things too. I think that's the beauty of the expression of the body of Christ too. Denominational differences, uh, philosophical differences, but as long as, I mean, <clears throat> as long as we find God, Christ being preached, the gospel being presented, I think Jesus, even as he's navigated different moments with his disciples, like Christ is still preached. That's what matters. Like the hope is still preached. That's what matters. And so whatever the expression is, as long as Christ is the center of it and the purpose behind it, I think there's value to it. But um, I think everybody is wired differently and we have to navigate that together. So, yeah. So, and I think overall, the big, the main theme of the church as a whole, and what I mean, I, I guess I'm talking about like, like just the gathering of God's people is this idea of Christian community. Um, it's this idea of, um, being together with other Christians who are encouraging each other, um, who are uh, having the hard conversations with each other and helping each other grow closer uh, to Christ. Yeah. Both. And, I, and I would say this too, in the early, you know, gathering, I mean, you, you, the, the question and the questions mentioned, mentioned their uh, small group and formality of a church service wasn't there. Um, when they gathered together, they would sing, they would sing songs. I mean, you saw it in moments with, was it... Paul and Silas in prison, they were singing hymns. So singing is an element of community for sure. So I think like the service elements that we see in a a large gathering, like we do at the Grove Church, Mm -hmm. there's some biblical roots there. There's some biblical foundations there. And I think the other side too, is like the method change. We say, I mean, Evan even said that like 
the, the methodology of gathering as a church, a Christian church, changes throughout the social constructs and contexts. So I think you see that like in the context we're in right now, the way to, to preach the gospel to a large group of people to get the hope of Jesus out there is in a larger context than just necessarily these small right. church gatherings. So anyways, yeah, all, all these elements. I could keep talking, but. Yeah, all these elements, the way that they look over time definitely changes. <clears throat> like for instance, the idea that the, that the preacher on a Sunday um, is not just reading from a text, that's within, I think George Whitfield is one of the yeah, first modern people day. in the 1800s who did it. So like, there's things like that that we kind of take for granted for now that have changed. But the important, the important elements are, are, are you in a Christian community um, that lovingly prompts you to continue to pursue your relationship with Jesus? Uh, do you worship together? And are you learning more about Christ and scripture together? Those are kind of like the main elements, I suppose, um, as far as church goes. And those yeah. things can be um, on a macro scale that we see a lot of times, and they can also be small. Like there's tons of churches out there that are um, hundred people or less that are that are great. So it's just one of those things where um, a lot of it just comes down to particular communities and those sorts of things. Yeah, and I'll just say this real quick too: as I made a big assumption um, when the word small group was used to define that in terms that we use it in church world of 10 to 12 to 14, whatever. If you're using small group differently um, and, and setting up the conversation, I guess that would be a better question to start off is, how do you define small group? Is it that 10 to 12 to 14 gathering of individuals or is it 50 to 100 or is it whatever that small gathering would be identified as? That would also shape some of the conversation too. Right. But uh, the real thing that I'm curious, like, and I haven't, I haven't done a lot of thinking about it, um, is the part of Leviticus 23. It talks about the Sabbath, the Sabbath uh, being a holy assembly, and why would we celebrate that but not the other? This is in that chapter. I haven't looked into that chapter yet. So, do you see? Oh, this is the last yeah, part of that question. Um, and I don't have my Bible in front of me to read that chapter, so I'm sorry for that's funny. I didn't even th I didn't even think about the second part of that section. Answer to your question. Uh, to be continued. We'll talk about that next week. <laughs> so there you go. We'll get a part two. That's a good question. I, yeah. All right. So uh, with that, though, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Let's Read the Bible. Um, just as a reminder, if this podcast has been a blessing to you uh, and you would like to financially support the ministry of the Grove Church, you can do that by our website. Uh, go to grove.church and there's a give button right there. Um, and then finally, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. If you go on our website and click on media, uh, you can also find past messages as well as a new blog that we launched called Life and Limb. So, oh, this week I wrote it. So there you go. If you so want now to, you got to go check it out. Yeah, if you want to read, uh, it's, it involves. I don't want to. I don't want to get no you too excited, get, but but a teaser. Let's have a teaser. It involves Casablanca, Lord of the Rings. So yeah, that's pretty. You cool. might have just la lost half the people. Nah, they're gonna love it. Anyway, uh, with that being said, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great day.